are better than fake books any day. All right. And so uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. And so I prefer that route. You should prefer that route because all good book nerds do. Um, now, God just kind of does something special uh, with his word when it's in front of us. Like, like convenience is great. We're going to use technology, but man, the, the Bible's something else. And so uh, if you've got access to one of those, that's great. If you don't have access to a Bible outside of this place, like you don't own one of yourself, we would love for you to take that one home. We believe that God's words are more important than Stephen's words. And so uh, if, if you take a Bible home and start reading it for yourself, we believe that God will use that in a big way. Most, most importantly, that he'll show you himself. Uh, that's the primary purpose of the Bible. It's got all this other stuff that's valuable too, but the purpose of the Bible that's over and above every other purpose is that God uses it to reveal himself to us. And so if you want to know God, that's the place to find him. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one. Um, we are... A few weeks now into a series that we're calling The Story of God, right? And I feel like we're rolling now, right? Uh, we're, we're, we've been doing this for about four weeks or so. Uh, we're starting to get a feel for it. Uh, those of you who are new, the premise is really simple. Uh, we believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Not just the New Testament stuff, the whole Bible. And not just the, the messianic promises in the prophets. Like, that's important too. But we, we think, like, the story of Abraham is about him. And we think that the story of Noah is really about Jesus. And we think that the story of Moses is really about Jesus. And, and we're in good company because Jesus himself thinks so too. Right, and, we, and we've given this more time in other places. Uh, we've, we've fleshed out why we land there and why Jesus thinks that in, in other places. And so if that's of interest to you, you can go find that. We, got, we record all this. We got the podcast. It's on our website. It's on iTunes. You can go find all that kind of stuff if you're interested. But we got a lot of cover this morning, so I'm going to move on real quick. We're basically asking the question, this question. How does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story tell me about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? So let's just jump into it. We've got a, a kind of a trajectory for the Old Testament. And so here's the deal. The story of God question is admittedly a pretty massive one, all right? But we can break it down. So the practice that we've been taking uh, the last several weeks is to break it into four smaller questions. you all remember what those questions were? There's going to be a test at the end of this. All right. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does their story preach the gospel? If we can answer those four questions faithfully, I think we leave ourselves in actually a pretty easy place to answer the much larger story of God question. All right, it, we, when we break it down into those four questions, I think we actually land in a good place, and, and the story of God question is actually pretty easy to answer in that point. So y'all ready to jump into the, our next story for the morning? Who do you think it is? So we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Noah, we looked at Adam, we looked at Sarah. Who's next? Yeah, we're looking at Isaac this morning. So let's give our kids some profile. The son of promise, just like his daddy, silent lamb of God. Silent lamb of God. Are you all ready to look at our first question this morning? All right. Sounds like you are. Genesis 21. We looked at this text last week uh, to close out our story of Sarah. Now let's look at, use it to look at the story of uh, our boy Isaac. Gen uh, Genesis 21, look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. 
And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. All right, so it happened, right? God gave him a kid. Like, like reading the story of Abraham and Sarah, you begin to wonder after a while, is this ever really going to happen, right? It's, God comes to them in Genesis chapter 12 when, when Abraham is 75 years old, Sarah is 65 years old, and he says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a massive family. And that's an interesting promise because they don't have kids yet, and they're probably not going to have kids because the physical stuff just ain't happening for them. And, no, but God makes that promise. And then years go by, and more years go by, and decades, multiple decades go by until 25 years later, God finally does it, right? He finally gives them a kid in Isaac. I think this boy was doted on. I bet that kid was spoiled rotten, right? After 25 years, Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. God finally opens up the door for them to have children. They finally get this promised son. I bet Isaac was a brat. <laughs> right? They, Isaac got and had access to all kinds of stuff. He was the recipient, promised recipient of the covenant. God makes it clear that this kid, not Ishmael, not the, not the boy that, that Abraham got through his sinful relationship with Hagar, that God makes it clear that Isaac is going to be the one that this covenant promise passes through. The great nation doesn't stop with Abraham, it keeps rolling, right? God makes it clear that this boy is going to be the recipient of everything he promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So I'm willing to bet that this boy had some privileges that the rest of the folks at Abraham's house didn't have access to, right? For starters, Isaac was to be given a good wife. Like a good wife. Join me in Genesis 24. We're going to fast forward several years in the life of Isaac. He's an adult now. But in verse 1 we read this. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you a swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, and that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman was not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, so Abraham wants Isaac to marry somebody from his own kindred, right? But don't think of this as a racial issue. Think of this as a promise issue. What's, what's going on? God has called Abraham and his family to remove themselves from uh, everything they've known and then go to this new land. But they're not integrating themselves into the land here. They're not simply starting a new life and... and and creating for, the, for themselves a life amongst this new people. No, God is giving them the land. 
And so this is less about a, a Canaanite versus whatever Abraham is issue. Abraham demands that Isaac be found a wife from his own kinsman. Because this is about isolating out this one promise that God has made to just blow up this family for the benefit of the whole world. And so he sends his eldest and most trusted servant on the journey to bring her back, right? That servant goes off. And then for homework later, you can read the rest of chapter 24. Those of you who know the story, what happens? He finds Rebecca. There's this weird thing about him asking God to, to show him a sign that the girl that would approach is the one that he should find to be the wife for Isaac. And these crazy circumstances roll out where she offers him water and then offers to give water to his camels, blah, 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 blah. And then over the course of the rest of chapter 24, we learn without a shadow of doubt that Rebecca is the one that God wants for him. Everything falls into place. And then chapter 24 closes out with this servant bringing Rebecca back to Isaac, and we see the ancient Near Eastern version of a wedding. But that's not all that Isaac has given to him. It's not just a wife. Isaac also gets all of Abraham's stuff. Look at the next chapter, chapter 25. Verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Okay, so time out. For those of you who don't know the story, uh, Sarah is dead by this point in the tale, all right? But Abraham marries again, and her name is Keturah, all right? So Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan. Those names need to make a comeback. Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Latushim and Leumim. I'm sure I butchered that. Verse 4. The sons of Midian were Ephath, Epher, Hanuk, Abida, and Eldiah. All these were children of Keturah. Don't even act like you're not brave enough to stand in front of you. All, right. All these were the children of Keturah. So according to this text, Abraham now has eight sons. Eight sons. And they live in a culture where the eldest son... In this case, Ishmael, right? Because he was the first boy that Abraham has. They live in a culture where the eldest son is going to get the lion's share of the inheritance and then everything else is just going to be split up amongst the rest. Except for that whole part about Isaac being the son of promise, right? So what happens? Well, verse 5. Abraham gave all that he had to who? But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So Ishmael and the other sons, they get presents, but then they're also sent away. Why? Because everything belongs to the son of promise, right? Isaac gets it all. He doesn't just get all of Abraham's possessions. He gets the land that's been promised to him. Right? And so... The biggest thing that we learn about Isaac here is that the reward of God's blessing doesn't come from anything he's earned, but through his status as the son of promise. Isaac doesn't do a darn thing to earn this. He just kind of stumbles into it. There's nothing special about Isaac here other than the fact that God says, that's the one you're going to give it to. Isaac doesn't act a certain way while all the other... Seven sons of Abraham are just absolute jerks and morons. 
Isaac is the son of promise. His status as the son of promise is what opens the door for all of these blessings. He didn't do anything to place himself in the position of deserving it. It's just his by declared status. Think Isaac minds that? You don't exactly see him complaining about it, right? So Isaac's got all this stuff going for him. But that's not the only question we have to answer this morning, is it? We're going to awkwardly skip ahead to question number three for a second, and I'll show you why in, this, in a little bit. Genesis 26, what did God do to redeem him? Our boy Isaac is a full-grown man now. He's got a wife, he's got kids. Tell that story next week, but for the purposes of this morning, Isaac's just rolling along as a grown-up, right? In Genesis 26, we learn this. Verse 1, now there was a famine in the land, beside the former famine that was in the days of, his, of Abraham, his father. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Okay, so God gives Isaac the same promise he gives his daddy, right? Like, you see the same kind of language there. He tells him to go to land instead of this, this land instead of that land. He tells him that he's going to bless him and make him a great nation. He tells him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through what God is doing for him. Sounds an awful lot like Genesis chapter 12, right? He gives them the same promise that he gave to Abraham. So in other words, the covenant rolls on. I mean, think about that for a second. The miraculous birth of Isaac. We tend to tell that story as a standalone story, right? Oh, how great. God looked kindly on the, the barren old couple wandering around in the land of Canaan. No. It's part of a much, much larger story here of God working something for the cause of his world. The story isn't about them at all. It involves them, but it's not about them. Isaac's entire existence serves the much greater, much more beautiful purpose of God saving the world. And what began to be unfolded through Abraham now takes its next step through his son Isaac. The covenant rolls on. God promises to be near to Isaac all the days of his life. To bless him in spite of him and the circumstances going on around him. Now the reason why we need to set that up is because we get to awkwardly answer question number two. Because even though God has literally just said this to Isaac, that's only the beginning of this chapter. Look at the very next verse. Verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Just a little side note, that Hebrew word translated as laughing there in verse 8 doesn't just mean laughing, if you catch my drift. All right. Verse 9, So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. 
Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. In verse 11, so Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So, that apple didn't seem to fall too far from the tree, now did it? Those of you who don't have much of a church background, or maybe you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we looked at the story of his father, Abraham, this is a familiar story. Why? Because it's happened before. Twice, actually. In Genesis 12, uh, Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife, says that she's his sister so he can save his own rear end, so he can protect himself. All right? And then in that story, the Pharaoh, because they're down in Egypt, the Pharaoh uh, abducts Sarah and God has to intervene to save her. And then in chapter 20, Abraham does it again with a different king. Isaac's just like his daddy. Not only just like his daddy, Isaac repeats the sin of his father. We're told that he lies about Rebekah being his sister, again, to save himself. I don't know if you caught this, but it's even with the same king. Have you, did you catch that? In chapter 20, we said that in chapter 12, it's Abraham down in Egypt, and the Pharaoh does it, right? In chapter 20, Abraham is in Gerar, and the king is Abimelech. Like, do you think he saw it coming? <laughs> so Isaac is just like his daddy. Yellow-bellied as they come. But this time, instead of Rebekah being abducted and God having to intervene, we're told that Abimelech catches Isaac and Rebekah out of his window says he sees them doing stuff that brothers and sisters don't do, and so he knows the jig is up. And the Bible says that he calls them out on it. Call a sidebar for a second and just throw out a couple of observations, a couple of truths that we can draw from that. One, don't ever think that your sin doesn't have generational consequences. It absolutely does. It's not just about you. Your kids are watching. Have fun with that. <laughs> Two, the second thing we can pull out of this is that how tragic is it that the pagan king has to call out God's covenant people on a moral issue? What a sad day. But that's for free. Back to our story. Moving on. What else do we learn about Isaac's sin? Like that's a pretty terrible one, right? What else do we learn about Isaac's junk? The answer is not much else. This is the only story that we've got of Isaac doing something dumb. Does that mean that this is the only time Isaac failed? Not even close, right? It's not even close to that. We just don't have those stories told to us. We don't know as much about Isaac as we do about his father Abraham or even about his son Jacob. We have less told about him than about those guys. But we know that he's fallen short, right? And so even though we're not aware of, as aware of his faults as we are of theirs, they're there. But now we get to go back to question number three again. What did God do to redeem him? So God gives Isaac the same promise. The covenant rolls on. And even though Isaac has got his own issues, the story keeps going. Look at verse 12 in Genesis 26. And Isaac sowed in that land... 
and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man, uh, man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Uh, verse 15, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. All right, so God makes Isaac unbelievably fruitful, right? Unbelievably fruitful. Did you catch the number that was thrown out there? He planted and he got back a hundredfold. All right, let the Texas boy explain to all the city slickers, okay? That's not normal. Nobody in here, I don't care how great of a green thumb you have, is throwing a couple of seeds and getting back a hundredfold on your investment. If, they, if you are, we should hang out later. I got some ideas to run by you. God is blessing him over and over and over again. So much so that Abimelech and all of his folks are starting to get a little nervous. God is blessing him in such a massive way that Abimelech doesn't go, you know what? We can put this guy to work for us. Abimelech goes, you worry me. The rest of this chapter rolls out with uh, Isaac and his men digging a bunch of wells over and over and over and over again. Remind you that this is in the Middle East. Wells aren't just everywhere. And so they dig a well and then uh, Abimelech's men go, no, that belongs to us. And then they dig another well and Abimelech's men go, that belongs to us. Over and over and over again. It's because they're super valuable. Prime real estate in that world. So what does Abe, uh, Isaac do? Text tells us he just moves down a little bit and digs into the well. Over and over and over again, God is just blessing him in a way that is beyond explanation. And so even though we know far less about Isaac than we do about Abraham and Jacob, there is a reason that he's included when people talk about the patriarchs. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know that line? We know significantly less about Isaac than we do about his dad and his son. All right? But here's the unavoidable truth. The blessing of the Lord was clearly on him. God made the promise and he kept fulfilling the promise over and over and over again. But we also have a fourth question to answer this morning. And, all of, and as all of the best church kids in the room can tell, it's... The gospel is most clearly told in the story about Isaac we've avoided so far. Right? Back to Genesis 22. So we're rewinding ourselves back in Isaac's story. We're not exactly sure when this plays out. We're not exactly sure when, how old Isaac is when this story takes place. But uh, we do know it's somewhere between him being weaned and him getting married. It's a big window. But it is, it's a window, and we got some bookends there. And I think a lot of people just assume that this story plays out when Isaac is a little boy. Uh, but there's some clues in the text which actually lead us to believe that Isaac is a young man when this takes place. Uh, that, you know, like late teens, early 20s. But let's read the text and see for ourselves. Genesis 22, verse 1. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on his son, on Isaac his son, excuse me. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And verse 14 says, So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So we can finally talk about the quintessential Abraham and Isaac story, right? God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. His son. Those of us with a, with a lengthy church background have probably grown numb to this reality, so I'll let it take a second to sink in. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's, that's an outlandish command from our point of view, right? Can we just be honest about that? That's not just outlandish. That is, for, that's a few good men, you should have ignored the code red kind of crazy. That is an outlandish command from a human standpoint. Let, let me just say it. I will stand right here, I will look you in the eye, and I will shout it to the mountaintops. If you hear a voice in your head telling you to kill your child, I have no problem in front of everybody this is being recorded saying, you should ignore that voice and immediately go seek psychiatric help. Stop what you're doing and go. We'll help you get there. Unless. Unless like Abraham, the only reason you have that kid to begin with is because God manifested himself in front of you called you by name out of darkness and into the light. Unless, like Abraham, God made himself intimately known to you for a couple of decades before he finally fulfilled the promise of giving you that child. Under the most miraculous and obviously miraculous circumstances. Unless, like Abraham, after years and years and years of promising to give you that kid and fulfilling the promise to give you that kid, he makes the 
equally trustworthy promise that that kid is going to be the bearer of the covenant to come. That that kid is going to have a future brighter than your own. That the covenant would be carried through him and a great nation would come through him too. And so I'll stand here and I'll look you in the eye and I will shout it from the mountaintops in front of everybody. This is being recorded, all that business. If those three circumstances are in place, you do whatever God tells you to do despite what everybody else is screaming about. Right? If you've got those promises in your back pocket, don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. See, we tend to see this story as an outlandish command. But God doesn't. God doesn't see this as an outlandish command. And the reason why is because the only reason that kid is alive at all to begin with is because God gave him life. And if God wants to take it back, it belongs to him. But we can take another step into this. If God wants to give that life back after he takes it, it is just as easy for him. Just as easy. Just as simple. See, we tend to only think about this story on a human level. Oh, how difficult it must have been for Abraham. I could never do that. And with a pastor's heart towards you this morning, I want to gently point out that that is a self-centered way of reading the Bible. This is the danger of moralizing the Old Testament because it causes us to look for a hero to emulate. But this story isn't about Abraham and Isaac. This isn't their story. And a God-centered reading of this text, of this story, helps us to see the reality that God is not really troubled by this whole death thing. He's got it. He can handle it. He's Lord over even that. And Abraham knows it too. Look again in verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Look at verse 8. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham knows that he can trust that God, he can trust God to provide, right? Abraham is confident in that. And he doesn't know what he's going to find when he gets to the top of the mountain. He's only trusting the command that's in front of his face at that moment. But whatever happens up there, Abraham is confident that it's not going to be outside of the sovereign control of his promise-keeping God. And the writer of Hebrew points this out, uh, Hebrews points this out to us too. Look at Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And verse 19 is the biggest thing ever. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets up on top of that mountain, but he does know who God is. 
Abraham doesn't know what's going to play out when he gets up there. He's only following the command that's in front of his face. But he's got promise after promise after promise after promise from this promise-keeping God in his back pocket, including, including the one that says Isaac is the one this promise is carried through. And so regardless of what God is calling him to do today, he can trust that God has also promised everything for the day tomorrow. He will carry him through. We keep talking about Abraham. There's a reason why we saved this story for Isaac's week instead of two weeks ago with Abraham. So we get it. Abraham trusted God in a massive way, but it's what's going on with Isaac's story that's truly amazing here. Everything about this story is just dripping with shadows of a much more beautiful story to come. For starters... God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. There's something very similar to that that's said in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. Now, we, we read that as, as people who natively know English, and, and we've got our own culture stories. And so we don't normally just see that in the text. But in John 3, we're told that this, this conversation is happening between Jesus and a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is uh, what John calls him, what Jesus calls him in John, uh, the teacher of Israel. That's more likely than not a title. Nicodemus was an expert in the Jewish law and scriptures. But not just an expert. He was likely, in all likelihood, the expert that the experts went to when they had a question. And so while we don't pick up this kind of language, I promise you it would have ticked something in, in Nicodemus' ear. It would have reminded him of this story. So next time you're reading it on your own, pay attention to that. Because Nicodemus knows something that we don't intrinsically know. Secondly, Isaac carries his own sacrificial wood in verse 6. Did Jesus ever do anything like that? Yeah, yeah, he did. He carried his cross outside the camp toward his execution. We also learn that Isaac doesn't resist in verse 9. Like a sheep before his shears is silent, so Isaac opened not his mouth. I told you all earlier that I think um, we think that Isaac is a young adult when all this plays out. A couple of reasons for that. One, because Isaac is conscious enough of the, the method of sacrifice that he sees the problem. Hey, Dad, we got the knife, we got the fire, we got the wood, where's the, where's the lamb? He understands the system well enough to ask the question. Secondly, because the text says he carries his own wood up the mountain. It, it takes a lot of wood to burn a body. Like Even if we're talking just a wee little lamb, cute little guy, that's more than just an armful of sticks. And it takes a lot of wood, and Isaac carries all that up the hill. Implied in the text is that he also helps his 100-plus-year-old daddy up the mountain. So in all likelihood, Isaac is a young man at this point. Now, why is that important? Because if Isaac wanted to stop this, he would have. Oh, he could have. The second Isaac wants to shut this down, it's getting shut down. Abraham's not going to overpower him. 
But instead, he silently allows his father to bind him. Lay him on the altar and raise the knife. Isaac trusts the plan of his father. He trusts his father's plan. Another thing we can point out is that all of this happens on Mount Moriah. It happens in verse 2. Mount Moriah later becomes the city of Jerusalem. Literally, it's the Temple Mount. So follow me here. The place where the almost sacrifice of Isaac happens is literally the place where hundreds of years later they would make ritual sacrifice after ritual sacrifice after ritual sacrifice as an appeasement for sin before God. A millennia plus later, it would become the place where Jesus would die and be raised from the dead. God's got big Big plans for this mountainside. So the almost sacrifice of Isaac is a shadow of something, but I keep calling it the almost sacrifice of Isaac because God stops it, right? He intervenes. And so even though Isaac shadows many of the elements of the coming work of Jesus, he's not the ultimate Christ figure in this story. Who is? It's a substitute, right? Genesis 22, verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The best story in the universe, the best story the universe will ever know is not quite ready to be told yet. And in Isaac's day, we only get a taste, but the fulfillment is surely coming, right? God will provide his substitute. That substitute eventually does come in the person of Jesus, but this time, there's no intervention. There's no, wait, 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 wait. It's carried through to the end, right? Jesus carries his own sacrificial wood to the place of his sacrifice. He pays the debt owed by you and me for our sin to reconcile us to God. The covenant rolls on and God is blessing all the families of the earth. There's one overarching theme to our series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus, right? And so today we learn that God raised up Isaac to be a shadow of a more perfect Isaac to come in Jesus. The story of God is no small deal. It's easily the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in the process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is, God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason, and that's his... His entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious and just how lovely and just how beautiful and just how wonderful he is. That's what God is doing through the story of Isaac. So how do we respond to God's word today? If, we're here in a follow, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? 
You do that by pressing and chasing after him through his word. It's the main way he's given us to do so. And to attempt to know him without it is like trying to drive a golf cart down the freeway when you've got a car in the garage. You might get to point a, from point A to point B, but it just looks stupid. We press in through his word. It's the primary means he's given us to know him. We can take another step into this, right? Maybe your life is more like Isaac than you like to admit. You've been blessed in some big ways. But even when God's promise to be right there with you is in your back pocket, you chicken out and you go your own way. I got a story or two I could share. It's a good day to repent of that. It's a good day to press in. So I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that's helpful for you. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. Say every week that we hope that you find this to be a safe place to work the, the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Keep sticking around, keep asking questions, keep pressing in, he'll get you. Maybe you're ready today. Maybe you're ready to meet the one that this story is all about. How you do that? Well... Pretty easy, actually. You confess your sin before him and trust him as Lord. I'd love to walk you through what that means. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that's helpful for you. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank you for being a God who makes a promise and then has every bit the fortitude and the character to fulfill that promise. God, I'll confess that a lot of times I read the Bible in a self-centered way. I tend to think that the stories are about me. The stories are never about me. They're always about you. But you love us. And you draw us to yourself, and you make yourself known to us. And so, God, I pray that this morning people will come to know you. You awaken hearts to see your face today. To fall in love with you this morning. God, as we sing, would you use this time to help us respond well to what we heard today? You are good. In your name we pray. Amen.